right. Good morning, everybody. That's a nice chord there you ended on. I did that just for you, Mike. Just for me. I appreciate that. Welcome, everybody. It is so good to have you here. Spring has sprung. Thankfully, we've made it into the season. We're here in Southern California, at least, that we'll be outside, you know, um, without fear of freezing. Although some of you feel like you're freezing right now. I promise you, you're not. Just convince yourself that you're not freezing. You'll be all right. It's a good-looking group here this morning. I, I like what I'm seeing. I see faces, hearts positioned to, to receive the word. Yeah, it's a, it's a good thing. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter 5. Make it chapter 6. Let's go to chapter 6. We've been walking through the Gospel of John. This morning we're going to look at a familiar passage. I think it's going to be familiar to a lot of folks from the New Testament. It's going to be the fifth sign, number five, that John records for us in his Gospel account. And so it's going to be a little interactive this morning. How many signs in the Gospel of John does John record? Total. Seven. Seven signs total. So this is the fifth one. And it is the feeding of the multitude. How many are a multitude? A lot. Yeah. How many in this case are we talking in terms of multitude? 5,000, right? So I told you it's a familiar passage. Jesus feeds the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fishes. Fish. Fishes. It's a, it's a big fish fry. So how many of you familiar with this part of the Bible? Jesus feeds the multitude, feeds the 5,000. Okay, so let's read the Word of God together in John chapter 6, and then we will dive in together. I'll get there eventually. John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. This is what the Word of God says. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said that to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign, what he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. (coughs) Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into the boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. The sea had become rough because the strong wind was blowing. 
When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the water and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So normally at this point I would just move right into a prayer, but I want to ask you something right off the bat. We just read 21 verses from the Bible. What have we learned about God in this passage of Scripture? Give me some give me some things. What do we learn about God from these 21 verses? Generous, powerful. Perceive the need. He's not afraid. He provides. He's compassionate. Awesome. Love it. What do we learn about people or ourselves? <laughs> We're doubters. We're hungry. What is it? Impulsive. Anything else that we learned about ourselves or people? Fearful. Skeptical. Follow fame. Now we're getting into some deep stuff here. I like it. Okay, so let me pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding this passage more fully and what it means for us today, okay? Let's ask the Lord's help. Lord, we come to you right now humbled that you still speak to your people through your word, in prayer, through other believers. Father, we know that you you exceed every need in ways that we can never anticipate. And we learn so much about you and about ourselves when we look at this passage. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to learn even more, not only about ourselves, but what it is that we need to do differently in order to be less like ourselves and more like you. Teach us, instruct us, equip us, and then, Lord, compel us to action based on what we hear and learn this morning. Guide us, I pray. Speak through me truth alone. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have questions throughout the duration of the sermon, please text those questions to the number that is in the digital bulletin. Again, it's at pillaroceanside.com. On the digital bulletin, you'll see the number there. Text it in, and me and Mike will come up here and do our best to answer those questions at the end of the message. So chapter 6, here we are. It's opening with this sort of ambiguous time frame. We've got some language here. After this, or sometime after this, or after these things, depending on your translation, none of which give us really a firm time frame. We can't really say how much time has passed. But scholars believe, check this out, anywhere from 6 to 12 months have passed since the last scene that we saw in John chapter 5. Interesting. A lot of things have happened over this time period, of course. But John doesn't record them for us all. They are, however, recorded somewhere. Where are those events recorded? In the other Gospels, right? Something we haven't talked a lot about is how the Gospels relate to each other. John's kind of a bit of an outlier in terms of you know how the other three Gospel accounts are situated, if you will. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they actually have a special name that they've been assigned to show how they relate to one another. Anybody know what that term is? The synoptic Gospels. Go, that's a fancy word. It is, but simply defined, it means uh, taking a common view. That's all it means. The synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they take a common 
view. They share much of the same content and structure. John, however, he's taking a different view, and I think that's a good way of looking at this. Is It's a different angle, if you want to look at it that way. They're all looking at the same thing from different points of view. It doesn't mean that any one of them is less accurate or is missing something along the way. They all play their part in giving us the full story that God has intended for us to see and understand. It's really not unlike that eyewitness um, describing, a couple of eyewitnesses, uh, describing the same event in a courtroom. They all sell different aspects of the same event, and separately they give specific detail that is important, but when you put them all together, then you have a clear picture of what actually happened. So there's not any conflict, there's no contradiction happening, but it's, it's worth noting that these Gospels interact with each other in a very specific way. It's also worth noting that this particular story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is one of only a few that is recorded in all four Gospels. There aren't very many stories. Yes, there's, there's ideas and concepts, but stories in all four Gospels, and this is one of them, and I, I think it's significant. So let us see why this is significant for us today. I'm calling the message... Human calculations with a God-sized problem. Human calculations with a God-sized problem. All right, so where are we? Geographically, we're, we're basically in the same general region, Jesus and his disciples. Now we're heading across the Sea of Galilee. What's the other word he uses, the other name for that sea? Tiberius. Why do we have two different names going on here? Well, by the time John writes his gospel, it's been years since the Sea of Galilee was known as the Sea of Galilee, now it's more commonly known as the Sea of Tiberias. And so he uses both terms so that everybody's reading, like, okay, I got it. They see that they're not alone, and that there's a large crowd following Jesus. Look down at verse 2. Why are they following Jesus? Because the signs. Check this dude out. Man, he's doing some crazy stuff. Let's follow him. That's essentially what's happening because they saw the signs. And as we're going to see at the end of the chapter, we're not going to get there today, that some of the people that were called disciples who were following Jesus turned back and no longer followed him. Keep that in your back pocket until next week. People called disciples turned away and no longer followed Jesus. Got it, got it tucked away? Okay. So now we have this scene that's set. We've got this large crowd that is there upon them. They're on this grassy hillside. The Passover feast is at hand. And Jesus lifts up his eyes and he looks out and he sees this huge crowd. And he asks Philip this all-important question, right? What's the question he asks in verse 5? Where are we going to get enough bread to feed all of these people? We saw in verse 10 that there were 5,000, 5,000 men, meaning that the total people present, including women and children, is probably closer to 10 or 12,000. That's a lot of mouth to feed, right? They're out in the countryside. You can't just run across the street to Costco and grab a, you know, a couple of carts worth of stuff. They're far, and the stuff that is near them are small towns. They're not built or designed to... to, to Accommodate 10, 12,000 people. No wonder Jesus is so worried about feeding them, right? Oh, is Jesus worried? Of 
course not. Look at verse 6. No, he's not worried. He knew exactly what he was going to do. He was only testing Philip, which is the first thing for us to note of significance, I think, this morning. God tests our faith. Did you know that? Yes, I think we all know that. How many of you enjoy tests? Just think back to your school days, or maybe you're in school right now. It's finals day. You're, you're so excited the night before you can't even sleep. You got up so early, you know, you ate a big breakfast, you're, you're pumped, you're like, finals, yes, finally, it's here. You got to slow yourself down so you don't run to class because you're just like overwhelmed with joy, right? Well, probably doesn't describe many, if any, people here. Was it, is that any of you? Just love taking tests? I got a hand over here, yep, two hands, okay, see me after this. <clears throat> I need prayer. <laughs> tests are not fun. They're just not fun. They can be difficult, stressful, and they are consequential. Meaning, there is something on the line when you take a test. And we're talking about school. Obviously, we're talking about grades. But we see many, many examples of God testing his people throughout the Bible, right? All kinds of examples. And so when the word test is used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is what it means. Examine, investigate, prove scrutinize, or put to the test. So it's important to realize that these tests from the Lord are well-intentioned and for a purpose. God just doesn't say like, oh, let's see who we can mess with today. That's, that's not the idea here. It's part of the Christian life. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter tells us straight up, like, hey, this is going to happen. You will be tested. The genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold. Now, are all tests difficult and painful? I got some hesitation on that one. But look at verse 6. Keeping in mind that the disciples now have a growing catalog of the miraculous work of Jesus, the test was simply, how are you going to answer my question? Jesus wants to know, how, how are we going to feed all these people? Maybe you're thinking back to the wedding scene in Cana when the wine ran out. Jesus multiplied it. Some of these disciples were there. That's not a painful testing, I don't think. It's just simply asking a question. But we get two responses. First is Philip. And he jumps straight into the details of the matter. Now, to kind of put this in modern language, basically what he says is, even if we had nine months worth of wages to go and buy bread, it wouldn't be enough for even just a little bit for everyone. Nine months worth of wages can't even handle that. And we don't have that. Now, if I'm being honest, and maybe you can be honest with yourself as well, this is often my response to when I see an overwhelming circumstance. Philip, like many of us, didn't even bring Jesus into the equation. Hopefully at this point you can realize why I've titled the sermon the way I did. Human calculations with a God-sized problem. <clears throat> I see in this passage two types of responses to the situation. 
we kind of hit on Philip a little bit, but Philip limits what God can do by excluding him from the process. His response only includes human effort to meet the need. Right? That's basically what he said. Let's, if we had nine months worth of money, you know, that's, that's human effort trying to meet this God-sized need. Not going to happen. But then there's Andrew's response. He actually does bring some things to God. In this case, he actually is the one that brings the five loaves and the two fish. But he doubts what God can do with these items. Look at verse 9. He's got these five loaves and these two fish. But then what is his comment? But what are they among so many? You see, he actually included God by bringing what little they had, but doubted what he could do with it. So there's limiting God by excluding him and then doubting what he can do with what we bring to him. Two different responses, both falling short. (laughs) Again, we've all likely walked out a version of this in our own lives. But here's the thing about God that I think we can take a lot of encouragement from. Did Jesus rebuke either of these two men? Did he get after them? You know, he's like, what's your problem? I've been doing all these things. Can't you just believe? None of that. Not even a hint of rebuke. He simply offers a test of faith, sees the response, and then just continues on with his plan. That's it. That's all that happens right here. The testing that God does in our lives is meant to bring about growth in us. And sometimes, church, we miss an opportunity to grow in our faith. But God remains faithful to continue offering opportunities. And thank God that he does. It's not one of those situations where you're like, oh, I missed that boat. It's never coming back around. That's not how God works. Fortunately or unfortunately, however you look for it, (laughs) you're going to be faced with that same situation again. And if you're stubborn, again. And again and again and again until what? Until you get it, until you grow, until you understand, you mature, and you see, oh, that's what you're doing. (laughs) You mean for me to have faith in what you're capable of. Okay, God, I get it. But there's no need to beat ourselves up when we miss that opportunity. We're not meant to walk in condemnation. We just continue to put one foot in front of the other as we follow after God. Day in and day out, growing in understanding of who he is and who we are. Looking for the next opportunity to grow in our faith. Amen? Okay. So now we see Jesus actually working the sign. He has the multitude sit down. Tells the disciples, go have them sit down on the hilly grass. If you look at the other gospel accounts, we actually get some more detail about how they are seated. Does anybody remember the size of the groups that they sit down in? Fifties and hundreds. Have them sit down in fifties. Have them sit down in hundreds. Which is a small example that God is a God of order. right? He has a plan. There's a reason why he wants this to be done a certain way. Then what does he do with the bread and the fishes? Offers them up. Asks a blessing upon them. And then has the disciples distribute them 
among everyone. And everyone eats. Verse 11, just a nibble. They just got a, just a little bit. As much as they wanted. It wasn't just something to tide them over. They ate till they were full. And if that weren't enough, the disciples go around and collect what was left over. And they get 12 baskets worth in verse 13. 12 baskets of fragments, not crumbs, not little tiny fragments, pieces left over so that nothing would be wasted. This is a small example that God is a great steward of the resources around him, is he not? I love this. God stewards the resources and uses your blessing to help others as well. God uses your blessings to help others around you. Where did these food items originally come from? From the little boy, right? Not only did this little boy steward his own resources, bring food for him and his family, but he gave them up so that Jesus could do something bigger with them. We must be willing to give up what we have for the good of others. Right? That's what we see here. This is a test of faith in the young man as well. If Jesus doesn't do something miraculous with what he offers up, him and his own family are going to go hungry. So his faith is being tested in the process. <clears throat> Which is a little bit about what I was getting at earlier. God uses your blessing to help other people as well. The boy was willing to leverage what he had for something more. We must be willing to do the same. So are you? It's a good question, right? Only you know the answer to that. So all of this <clears throat> shows us that faith is built in the process of doing. It's not in the sidelines or on the sidelines just kind of watching things unfold. It's an action word. Faith is an action word, and it's often put to test during trials and difficulties. Stay the course. If you hear any couple of words throughout this message, just hear, stay the course. Stay on the path. Remain focused on the Lord. Remember what he is capable of, what his word promises us. Now, as a result of all of this that has happened, there's quite a response from the crowd. What do they say? Man, this, this is surely the prophet. we got to do whatever we can to make him our king. Did you catch that? Why did Jesus retreat? Because he knew they were going to take him by force <laughs> to make him a king. I've read this story a lot. And that part has just never really stood out to me. They were going to take him by force and make him be their king. That's craziness, right? But they were so desperately looking for an escape from their oppression by the Roman government that they were like, that's it, take him, make him the king, do whatever we got to do. And what does Jesus do? <laughs> he ducks out. I always love that about Jesus. He's in this huge crowd and all of a sudden, boom, he's gone. Makes himself just disappear. Not really, but you get what I'm saying. He goes away. 
Now we know from the other gospel accounts that Jesus went up on the mountain alone to do what? To pray. This was a habit of Jesus, wasn't it? To get alone with the Father and pray. This has got to be a habit for us as well, church. We've got to make that time daily to get away with our Father. Sometimes that's a five-minute thing. If you're one of those guys you know, that has to be at work at 5 o'clock in the morning, you know, getting up at 4.30 sounds kind of gross to some of you. Some of you are like, I'm already up, so it's all good. Maybe you're a, a young mother whose husband is deployed or something like that, and you've got responsibilities. It's not always so clear-cut. I'll just set my alarm at 7, I'll get up and I'll do my prayer time and I'll go on my life. For some of you it is, but others it takes effort. But it's an effort that we've got to make, church. I guess that's my point. Is Every scenario looks different across this entire spectrum of people sitting here this morning. But what isn't different is our need to connect with the Father. Go and read John 15, if you've got a chance this week, and see why we need to abide in Jesus and what happens when we don't connect and abide in him. Set aside that time. Follow Jesus' example. Jesus sends his disciples on ahead of him. He goes away to pray. And then the disciples get in the boat and they begin to head across the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. It's sort of a bit of a transition paragraph in the middle of this, but uh, there's something significant that's happening here, so I don't want to just gloss over this section. So they're out in the middle of the lake. Uh, See, whatever, it's big. In the middle of the night, and the storm comes. Now, I've never been to the Sea of Galilee, but I'm told that these are not just like little, you know, lapping waves. Like, how the valley is situated and everything, there's like massive waves, like crashing over the boat. It's, It's intense, It's probably a little bit scary, even though these are professional fishermen, some of them. It's freaky, right? And they're probably scared. They weren't having the easiest of time. It says they're three or four miles out into the open water. One of the other gospel accounts say that they've been working hard because they're facing a headwind the entire way. If you ever rode into a wind, it is not easy to do. So they're exhausted. They're tired. It's the middle of the night. Jesus, nowhere to be found. Until... He appears. And what's Jesus doing when he appears? He's walking on the water. Again, another very, very familiar part of the Bible. No big deal. We're just walking on, on the water. In the middle of a storm. So I always picture Jesus walking on water and it's like glass. You know, he's just like kind of cruising. No, there are massive waves and things happening all over. But he's still probably just calm, cruising, waves crashing all around him. Right? And what is the response of the disciples? They're frightened. They're freaked out. Right? Other gospel accounts say they, they, they were certain it was a ghost that was coming toward them. Because what else would be walking on the water toward them in the middle of this craziness? If you go to Matthew and read his account of this, you'll get a little bit more detail about one particular disciple's response to when he sees Jesus walking toward him on the water. Peter responds by doing what? He gets out of the boat. Right? 
begins to walk on the water himself. Because he said, Jesus, if you want me to come, just call me. And what does Jesus say? Come on. He does. He gets out. He's walking towards Jesus. And he looks away from Jesus, sees waves, craziness happening all around him, and he begins to what? He begins to sink in the water. He begins to be overtaken by the storm. Jesus grabs him, grabs him and puts him in the boat, right? We don't have that account here, but, but this is what's happening here. The storm, or storms, I should say, of life are always around us. And here's what I want to tell you in response to this part of the passage. God stands ready to help you in the midst of your storms, even the ones that you are not responsible for. The disciples were simply doing what they were told. Jesus told them, get in the boat, go to the other side. They were not responsible for being where they were when that storm happens. Next thing they know, it's crazy town, and life is looking like, this, this could not end well for us. This is not good. They didn't cause the problem, did they? No. Sometimes we think storms of life only become only come because of our decisions, our bad choices. And many times they do. <laughs> like, let's not fool ourselves, right? But sometimes that's not the case. Regardless of how the storms of our life come about, Jesus is ready to help us. So if I was going to sum up this passage... Here's my, my thesis statement, since we talked about school and tests earlier. God is able to meet every need, even when we don't see any possibility of that happening with what is in front of us. God's able to meet every need, every situation, every circumstance, even when we don't see any possibility of that happening with what's around us, whether that's feeding the multitude of 5, 10, 15,000 people with a very, very little, or whether it's in the middle of the ocean, in this storm, we see no chance of rescue. Of course, those are, they're, they're images, they're pictures that we can relate and place over circumstances in our own lives. Maybe we're not worried about feeding the multitude, we're worried about putting food on our own table. Right? Maybe we're not in a boat being crashed to and fro by wind and waves. But life is feeling out of control. Circumstances are overwhelming. And it feels like we're drowning. God is able to meet every need to bring rescue and hope. And church, sometimes it's not instant. Yeah, in this case, yeah, the seas calmed immediately. But sometimes we got to ride it out. <laughs> That's when I talked about faith being built in the process of doing. Right? God has an intention for all of these circumstances and situations. It's a test of our faith. God will see us through. And he is building our faith in the process. That's That's... That's what I take away from this. And my encouragement is, for me personally, from the word, is that even when I miss it, God is still, he still remains faithful. And I miss it a lot, church. And I think we, we all do. But I think we, we miss it less when we're walking in community together. 
because when you're not in the boat by yourself, it's a lot easier to continue forward. When you know that there's somebody that you can call and say, hey, I'm just I'm just a little bit short this week. Do you think you could help me with gas? Life is a little bit better in community. That's how we are called to live, church. And you know we say that all the time. We haven't said it, the, our little catchphrase in a long time, but it just popped in my head because I, God put it there, I guess. Um, this church is not like family. It is family. And we need to live that out every day. And we do live it out. So many needs have been met by this congregation right here. And we've always been a, a modest-sized group but this is a generous group of people who meets needs, not only here in this body, but on this campus in this community. So God uses his people to meet the needs of others, just like the five loaves and the two fish of the boy. So let's, let's put away our human calculators when we see these things happening. Let's be aware of, of, of when... Jesus is testing our faith, and let's just stay the course, church. Let's stay engaged, stay in the battle, stay in the fight. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, we know that you love us and that you desire for us to live lives of obedience. And as Kyle opened us up this morning, Lord, uh, to, to, to address the issue of obedience-based discipleship, Lord, you, you desire for us to, to, to remain faithful to what you've called us to. Lord, your word tells us that if you love us, you'll, that we will keep, if we love you, we'll keep your commandments. Father, we know that these incredible blessings and this gift that you've given us is for those who call you Father. And apart from the work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, we have no access to the Father. It's only through our faith in you, Christ, in what you accomplished on the cross, being actually effective of reconciling us back to the Father, of our sins being forgiven, being atoned for by the blood of Jesus. It's only when we're in proximity to the Father, in relationship through the work of Jesus Christ, that we have access to these kinds of promises. And so... God, I thank you so much that you've made a way for us. Thank you so much that you've given us this community, this body of believers here in Oceanside. I am so grateful for the people that you've given us, Lord. Help us to be bold in our faith. Help us to grow in those circumstances that just seem overwhelming and impossible. Help us to do it in community with one another. God, grow our faith. Help us to love you and love others. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.